Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. As always, and before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as remind and continue to encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions, and certainly your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at RainCanada.com. If you're inclined, I'd really appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family. How about some people you know, or perhaps even some people you don't know? Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. Thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is sincerely appreciated. Now, I'm always excited to have a guest on the show that I'm just meeting really or getting to know for the first time. It's for me very, very interesting. And I'm really excited today for our guest, Dan Hare. Dan is a musician, he's an author, he's a philosopher, a husband, a father, and gosh, even far more than all of that. But he's definitely an all-round and incredibly interesting guy. And in the spirit of speaking with and learning from seemingly ordinary people who have and are accomplishing extraordinary results, I'm just really honored to have him join me on the show today. Now, I'll begin by saying that Dan has always lived a life of diversity. And we won't get into all of the things he's done in this introduction, but I'll simply say that he has a lengthy list of experiences and accomplishments that provided him a very clear and practical view of the world and his place in it, a perspective that is reflective, often humorous, and and sometimes challenging like the rest of us. Dan is driven by a insatiable curiosity about life and the world in which he lives and we live and combine that with a desire and a purpose-driven life of sharing his insights and helping enhance the life experiences of others. So he loves to be a contribution. His background and mission to help others was some of what really drove him to spend almost four years of work to converse with and interview over 300 people between the ages of 65 and 100 to publish his first book titled Regrets. They've had a few. Practical Wisdom from the Aged. That was back in 2009. And his book provides insights and lessons of people who have been on this earth for many years and were comfortable and willing to share their practical life experiences with Dan. Now, Dan lives his passions and has been a professional musician and entertainer for over 30 years and has appeared frequently on several TV shows. 
In his spare time, he spent years of his adult life attending university, earning a university degree in English and history, philosophy, and a master of divinity with a focus on counseling and theology. Over three decades, Dan has studied extensively in a wide range of topics, and he continues to do that even to this day. As a young man, Dan had jobs that ranged really the broadest gambit from sales to labor and many things in between. And all of these experiences really taught him much about his humility, how hard work was what you got to do and want to do. And it helped him overcome any fears about getting his hands dirty. Let's put it that way. In fact, the very week he graduated with a master's degree, he also painstakingly removed the floor from the cafeteria at the university he was attending to earn money for his education. So currently Dan also operates Don Hayes Music. It's a recording and promoting uh, business that takes on original music along with other selected artists. And he's well-known and well-respected musician in Western Canada. And his current group, the March Hair Band, which is where I got to hear and see Dan and kind of meet him for the first time, is one of Canada's most popular and successful show bands performing about 100 shows a year. And Dan has an uncanny ability for imitating voices and he's recognized by his peers and entertainment professionals as an exceptional vocalist. Maybe we'll get him to do a little bit of the imitation of the voices today in the interview. And in 2006, he was named Vocalist of the Year by Cameo Canada. The March Hair Band continues to be a very popular band in the corporate world as well as the festival market. And today, Dan lives in Surrey, BC with his wife, Lynette. He has two grown children and I'm just looking forward to having a great conversation with Dan. We're going to learn a lot from him and sharing what his studies are and his wisdom. And without any further delay, let's get going. Dan Hare, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Looking forward to getting to know you. Excited to have you on the show. A little bit out of, it seems a little bit out of context for what I would normally have for a guest on the show, but... I'm excited to have you because you've got a really interesting story and I want to talk about that. So welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Dan, when I have a guest on the show, I always like to give the question of what's your elevator pitch? What is, if somebody walks up and says, Dan Hare, what do you do? What what generally is your answer? Well, I've always followed my passions. I'm an entertainer. I've been a musician and entertainer my whole life. And so what I generally... Uh, encourage other people to do is to follow the things that they love to do, find the things that they enjoy and spend their life, spend your life doing the things that you enjoy to do. Is that a bit of what you do? Is that a bit of how you just occur in the world? And, and is that kind of a path or a journey in terms of where you go in your life right now? Well, I'm not sure if it's part of the hard wiring or if it's just part of the decisions you make uh, along the way, or maybe a, a bit of both. But for me, I've always wanted to do things that I find of value in. So the times that I found that I was happy in my life and that I have been happy in my life are the times where I'm pursuing something that I think is has merit and is worthwhile to my time. Um, you know, there was a book in the 70s, um, How to Get Control of Your Life and Your Time. And I had read that. And, and the driving question was, is this the best use of my time right now? That was the the, the basic thrust of that book. And it, and it always 
struck me because I thought, no matter what I'm doing, is this the best use of my time right now? So I tended to gravitate towards things that I enjoy, that I find fulfillment in, that I'm passionate about. And uh, of course, gravitate away from things that I just find aren't the best use of my time in terms of my overall passion and happiness. Now, you're a musician, you're a vocalist, you have a, a band. Tell me a little bit about your musical background and what you do. By the way, I've, I've happened to have the opportunity to listen to you play and <laughs> dance like a, you know, like party hard, <laughs> given the, the music that you play and the, and the group that you have and have had a lot of fun. So just give me a little bit of background on your, your being a musician and an entertainer. Your band. Well, I appreciate that. My uncle was an entertainer and a musician when I was a kid. So I started singing when I was six years old, and he encouraged me incredibly. I started playing guitar when I was probably seven or eight, and I just always had a passion for music. I just, I just had it in my heart. You know, I always wanted to sing and play music, so I did all through school and uh, was in school band, and I was in the provincial honor band as a high school student, uh, as a guitar player, so that was fun. So I play guitar and sing, I've always done that. My band got hired for our graduation ceremony and our, and our grad night at high school, so that was neat. And then I just kept playing music all throughout that. And so now I have a show band called the March Hair Band, and we do very well with that band. I'm, I'm very happy with the way things have worked out. In my 20s, I was uh, on the road a lot trying to pursue that dream. And then I came back to Vancouver in the late 80s and just decided I was going to make a living around here and just do the best I can with, with uh, being a show band and being an entertainer. And it's worked out great for me. I love it. I'm still loving it more than ever and have a real attitude of gratitude about being able to sing and play music for a living. I heard, first heard you because Don Campbell hired your band to play for his wife Connie's birthday. And it was interesting about it. I mean, we had so much fun that night. It was crazy, the energy that your group brought and had a, a great time. But I want to say something in watching you and watching your group play. There is certainly a very interesting energy that you guys have. And I'm not talking about a an energy as an entertainer. I'm just talking about that sense of, really solid, put together, grounded individuals, grounded people. I can speak to that more about what I felt about you, maybe perhaps as the leader of your group. But that was an interesting thing. And then something I pick up on what you said is that you've always had music in your heart. And so for yeah. you, music is really at a cellular level, big part of who you are. Would that yeah. be a fair statement? Oh, certainly. And and the thing is, is, it's more than just playing the songs. You know, to me, you're bringing an experience. I often say about the band is that we, we bring musical joy. We bring a musical experience that uh, it's a, a feeling that you create. You know, it's not just playing songs. Like one thing that I've noticed over the years is a lot of a lot of bands, a lot of entertainers, they they play songs. And, and I'll go and see a band and they'll play a song and I'll go, well, that's a nice song. And they did a good job of it. And they play another song and you have a similar response. For me, I, I'm more focused on bringing a feeling. So that encompasses being good people, being thankful on stage, you know, rather than being pretentious and, and strutting around. You can do some of that in the context of your show if that's what's required. But being thankful, being a good person and bringing musical joy to the people who are there is really what it's about and that that's the experience that people remember because it's often said you know people don't always remember all the things that they see and hear but the, the one thing they do remember is how they feel and so when you said that you know we had such a great time oh it was such good people our friends were there and we danced and we just enjoyed ourselves it's the feeling that you're relating mm -hmm. 
You know, it's interesting for me is that I, I just admire anybody with any kind of musical talent, vocal or instrumental. I mean, I joke that, gosh, I, could, I can't play a radio. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really fascinated by people that are gifted to do that. And, I, and to be a little less hard on myself, I've, I've never really, you know, attempted to learn a music, musical instrument. You know, I've thought about it, but it's just not what drives me. And, and so I'm just not drawn to it in that regard, but I yeah. do admire it. And I'm not a music file, but gosh, I really enjoy great music and following along with it. Now, when you look back and you talked about your uncle taking you down the musical path, was your were your parents along that? Did you have siblings that were in that world as well? Well, my dad was a trumpet player. He used to teach trumpet in the marching bands. I'm from Ontario originally, and, and marching bands were quite a big phenomenon back there after the Second World War. There was lots of shows and marching band shows, and so I, I had some experience there. My mom played classical piano. The thing about music is that it's it's one of those things if you're passionate about it and you get it in your heart. I mean, most people have tried to play a musical instrument. Most people take, uh, the overwhelming majority of people take guitar lessons or music lessons when they're kids, they join school band and, and a small percentage of them carry on with it and, and just really find that musical place within their heart, within their soul. And I was one of those people that just, there's something about music that just touches me in a certain way that just makes me want to do it and makes me uh, just be passionate and just the love to do it and to share it with the world. You know, that, that saying, find your gift and share it with the world. And for me, I was able to find that gift fairly early and it's music and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that. Now, you're you're sitting in your studio and we looked and you have that uh, a giant yogi bear in the back and you're we were <laughs> yes, joking about it that you'd bought it for, you know, when your daughter was born. Now, is your daughter musical as well, Dan? Uh, no, no, she's not. She she did a little bit uh, of stuff again. You know, she took some piano lessons and sure. she did sing a little bit and stuff. And she appreciated the fact that I was. But it wasn't a passion for her that she just had to do it. So, no. And my son was musical as well. I'm not sure what it is with, with certain people. I mean, there's certain things that you have to do, mm -hmm. right? Like the old saying, you know, what can't you live without? What is it that you can't live without? And for me... Music was was a big part of my life on a scale of one to ten. You know, it's it's a ten for me. Uh, for other people, it's a five or a six, and it's you know some people it's an eight, and for me it's a ten. And and so for my kids it wasn't a ten, but that's okay. I mean, both of them have had some experience with music and they enjoyed it, and I encouraged it. But that is, is as far as it went. A lot of our listeners are real estate investors or business owners, as in entrepreneurs. And of course, as a as a musician and doing what you do, there's a, a you know a certain entrepreneurial spirit that has to come along with playing uh, music. Have you have you found that that was part of all, also part of what you were drawn to, or was being an entrepreneur and you know owning the business called musician and a band and a team that puts it all together? Was that just something they had to do? What role do you play in all of that now that you've, because you've been at it this for a number of years? Yeah, I've been making a living for over three decades now. Uh, of course, there is a business component to it. It is the music business. And a lot of musicians um, fail to to sort of capture that understanding very well. And so they get tired. I've heard lots of musicians that I think are talented people that say, I got tired of the BS. I got tired of putting up with the with the crap. Well, if you do, then go and get a job doing something else because making a living playing music is not for the faint of heart, especially if you want to stick around here. 
But, you know, we often talk about goals and about success. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be a rock star. You know, I had a Les Paul and a Marshall stack and long hair, and I just wanted to be a rock star. That was my goal. And then I got into my 20s. I got married when I was 20, right after I turned 20. So, of course, I'm a young man in my in my 20s. I'm married, and I still wanted to pursue that dream of being a rock star. And so we talk about goals and, and what it means to be successful. And as I got through my 20s, there was other things in life that I wanted to do. So I, I wasn't willing to give my whole life away to be a musician. So you often hear that, you know, if you want to do something, you've got to focus on it a hundred percent and do that at really at the expense of everything else. And that's the way that you'll get your goals fulfilled. And then I started thinking about that and I thought, well, if I pursue music at the expense of everything else, you know, I, I built a house in the 80s. I got married. I had kids. I had other things I wanted to pursue. I've, I've had other interests that I've pursued my whole life as well. And I simply wasn't willing to pursue music at the expense and really at the cost of everything else. I was going to ask you about that because is music a full-time gig for you now? And, and what have you kind of done along your journey as a musician to, because, you know, the, the term starving musician is a pretty common and pretty well-known term in the industry. And I, and I know a number of musicians, I have a number of friends, and I see how hard they work in delivering their music, but they just wouldn't give it up for anything like you. It's just, that's who they are. So what, what other things have you done along the way and along your journey? Well, there's other things that I wanted to do. One of them was to have a family. I wanted to have uh, some kids. And of course, we had two. I wanted to build a home. We built a home in, in 86. I wanted to go to college. I've spent most of my life because I was a musician at night. I was able to to study during the day. So I, I have several degrees. I, I've gone to Kwantlen, SFU, Trinity. I've spent most of my adult life in one form of study or another. I pursued martial arts. I've been involved in that for many years. So I you know, wanted to stay in shape and, and, and be physically adept as I've gotten older. So all of those things, had I pursued music 100%, those things would have would have taken a back seat and i didn't want that you know when i when i was in the in my 20s in the 80s i wanted to be a rock star and was trying to get my band going and record music and and try to be successful in the way that i had pictured success and by the end of the 80s i was really not in a good place. I had been out of town way too much. You know, my marriage wasn't in great shape just because of financial difficulties and being away too much. And my kids were at home. And I really had to sit down and really redefine what I thought success was. And it was a defining moment for me because I had to look at it and really ask the question, honestly, what is, what is success? You know, how does society gauge success? Maybe it's wealth and status and fame and your looks and your talent. That's the way that, that society might look at what is successful. But I, I wanted to be successful as a person. And I think that, that no matter what it is, or the music, real estate, it doesn't matter what it is. I don't think that it's, it, you can say you're a success if you're not a success as a person, as a human being. And so if you were to dig in a little bit deeper into what, how you define sex, sex, <laughs> that's a good one, success. I trip over that word every time. I got to tell you a quick story. <laughs> I was standing on stage in front of 500 people and the words success often for me, for whatever reason, shows up at sex. I want to, I actually want to share the story <laughs> with the, the listeners. And I was in front of 500 people and went to use the word success in a sentence. And it came out just absolutely clear sex. 
and it was full <laughs> stop. I had 500 people chuckle all over the place. Anyways, but uh, we digress. It was a fun story, and and I had lots of uh, people shine a light on that. So thank you very much, as they will on this podcast. <laughs> Anyways, the the how do you define success today versus when you were 20? And there's a couple things, that, and I don't want to go off on a tangent right now. So tell me about how you actually define success, and and you had that moment in your 20s, a bit of an epiphany, if it will. Uh, can you dig into that a little bit deeper for me, uh, Dan? <laughs> Well, certainly, if if you want to, uh, for me, I had to define success for what I felt success would be. And, and it was a redefinition because I had bought into the typical, well, you know, successful people are wealthy. They have status. They have fame. They, you know, they have the looks and the intelligence and the education, all those things. But really what I came to was asking myself, how loving of a person are you? Can you be successful without being a loving person, without caring about others? How giving of a person are you? If if the success of your life is defined by what you give and not by what you get, then it's incumbent upon all of us to ask, well, how giving am I? On a scale of one to 10, am I a giving person? That would be success. How much of my time? And it's not just money. It's time, resources, empathy. Can I empathize with people? Can I um, give some of my time to my kids, to my wife, to my friends, to others? Can I do volunteer work? Sure, it's good to have resources. It's good to have some ability to help other people. Like the old saying, you know, if, if someone asks me for, for 20 bucks and I don't have 20 bucks, I can't help that person. So it is important to have some resources. But in the context of being loving and giving and, and building good character. And so I always remember the, the John Wooden quote, and you've probably heard it, but he said, uh, be more concerned with your character than your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Mm-hmm. And that is a great quote. For me, when I look at success, and so I break it down different ways. First, before I go into that a little bit, is that it is really what are we giving versus what are we getting? If we're in that world of what about being it about yourself, all sorts of things show up there, you know, depression being one of them. When you're focused on yourself, it's easy to be depressed. When you're focused on others, it is impossible to be depressed if you're truly focused on somebody else. And gratitude for what we have in our lives, all of those things are important in terms of how we give and what we put out in the world. When I came to a point in my life, you know, many years ago of the realization is that like you, wealth and good looks and what you drove and all of those things were really important to define success. And, you know, over the years, I really realized that for me, success was about where was I being a contribution? How could I actually impact other people's lives and, and be in a giving state? And I got to be honest with you. Sometimes I go, gosh, that's hard work, you know? And then I realized that's because I'm making it about me. (laughs) And as soon as I go back to where I came back to being a contribution, uh, you know, I'm good again. I'm a little yeah. bit, yeah, I'm a little bit pragmatic. So I break my, you know, my life into seven areas really quickly in my head. And it's like, where am I physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, vocationally, familial? And, and I think that's seven, but it doesn't matter when I look at all of or fine and financial. So when I look at all those seven areas of life and I just put them in my brain as buckets, I look at all seven areas of those buckets and go, how full are those buckets? How full am I spiritually, mentally, uh, vocationally, you know, health? Uh, financially. And I find that if one of those buckets gets a little bit low, it, if, I, if I'm not conscious of it, it can in fact taint my overall feeling of how, I, uh, how I'm dealing with my life in any given moment. And when I look at it and go, yeah, you know, I'm going through some financial pressure or 
you know, I'm not, I'm not happy necessarily with my workout routine and I'm not feeling as healthy as I'm usually, it doesn't taint the whole thing. What I can then do is go back and focus on that. So that's just a bit of an insight that I have around how I look at my life and, and feel successful. Yeah, and that's a great way to look at it. No, I appreciate that analogy because I think it's a good one. And all of those aspects of life are important. And we see that uh, some people will pursue one of those aspects at the detriment of the others. And that's where you are seemingly successful on the surface, but really, as far as a human being goes, not so much. And so I do think that building character is the first and foremost most important thing. And, and you talk about music, it, it, these things translate into everything. For example, I don't want to be part of any business deal where it's not a win-win. I'm not interested in exploiting anybody, taking advantage of anybody, taking anything from anyone that I don't deserve or haven't fairly earned. So I care about the other person. I want win-win relationships. That's the way I do business in the music business, and everybody knows it. I've negotiated against myself at times because I thought it was more fair to give the other person uh, a better break in a business deal. Now, that might be anathema to uh, some business people, but to me... I care about people. I love people. I love my audience. When, when I'm singing for people and I'm on stage, I care about those people. I love them. I, I'm there to sing and play music for them because I care about them. And, and it's amazing how that comes across. One of the best compliments I've ever got, someone came up to me and said, you know, you really know, you really love what you do and it's totally obvious. Dude, having seen you play a couple of times, I so agree with that. Tell me something, Dan, you had that realization when you were 20, was it something that you got to on your own? Were, did you have a mentor back then? Did you have somebody that, you know, you could actually have a conversation with maybe somebody older, wiser or a pal that you had those kind of conversations with perhaps your wife, whatever that might've been. How did you get to it at that age? Because that's, that's, that's a big breakthrough. Well, it's defining moments. This would have been in my eight, my end of my twenties, I would have been probably 29 or 30. I had been out of town for six weeks, uh, hadn't been home. And in 1989, I was away nine out of 12 months. So I was traveling. I was, you know, trying to pursue my dreams of, of music and, and really wasn't making a lot of money. And I just wasn't, wasn't living the way that I wanted to live. And I came home and I, I, I know we did a gig. It was way up north somewhere. And I, I left after the end of the gig and drove all night and got home. And my son was two years old. And I ran in the door and I was so happy to see everybody. And I went to hug my son and he pulled away from me because he didn't recognize me because I hadn't been home for six uh, weeks. Six weeks. Wow. And it just tore my heart out. Like it was a real defining moment. And I just thought at that moment, I thought there's no gig in the world that's worth that. That, that if I had to trade that for a, the, the best gig in the world, I wouldn't make that trade because there's no gig that's worth that. And so I just at that moment, it was a real defining moment for me. I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to school and finish my degree. I had already finished half of my English and history degree. And I thought, I'm going to come back to Vancouver. I'm going to make sure I'm around for my kids. I'm not going to travel anymore. I'm going to go back to school and finish my degree. I'm going to get my life on track the way that I want. And I made that decision at that point and I followed through with it. When we talk about, you know, to me, what I'm hearing a little bit around that is, as you say, is a defining moment. And I think in the, in our twenties and, you know, I'm, I'm about to turn 60. So, you know, there's, I got lots of history and, but I do have a very clear memory, uh, or at least in my, in my story is that I've got a clear memory of who I was being when I was 20. And the realization at some point in probably my early thirties was that who I'm being is a absolute choice and I get to choose who I am in the context of my life. I often see how 
and I only speak to young men, and I'm sure it's that way. Well, I know it's that way with women, but the question is, is I often see where young men, I'm going to say that particularly, is they're not necessarily conscious of that. They're not aware that they get to choose who they are. They really do get to define themselves. And in your case, you had a moment was like, and your son drove it. Holy cow, yeah. I've, I've got to change. But it wasn't also what you were doing, although that was a part of it. You know, you weren't, you were going to go off, the, you know, get off the road and do all the things that you were going to do. But it really was clearly you defining who you were going to be in the context of your life. Would that be a fair statement, Dan? Fair enough. Yeah. And one of the things that I often ask people is, is life something that's happening to you or is it something that you're making happen? Because quite often, surprisingly, people aren't clear on the difference between that. Is life something you're a baby, you grow up, you're just like, I'm here. I, I, somebody had me. I'm a human being. But really, as soon as you come to the realization that life's not happening to me, I'm happening to life. If you can understand the distinction I'm making, and and yes. that's that's the great part of it. You're the driver. You're in a vehicle, and you're you're a driver. One of the guys in my book said that. He said, being a human being is like driving a car. You got to keep your hands tight on the steering wheel, and you're the one that's steering the car that you're driving, which is you. You mentioned your book. Let's talk about your book. Give us the title of your book. So regrets. They've had a few, and that was you interviewing. 300 plus people, 65 to what, 100? 100, yeah. yeah. Yeah, where we actually sat down with them. And before we get into some of the stories of that book, you wrote that, uh, what was it back in, what, 10 years ago now you wrote that book? It came out, yeah, I, I did started doing the research in 2006. Basically what happened was when I came back to Vancouver in, in the early 90s, I had um, done half of an English and history degree. So I went back to SFU and I finished that. And then in 1993, I went to Trinity and I did a Master of Divinity and I studied uh, theology and counseling for five years. So I was there for five years and in 98 I graduated from there and then uh, took a couple years off and then I went back to SFU and did a philosophy degree because I wanted to uh, understand that a little bit better. So in 2004 when I finished my philosophy degree, I love philosophy, I've, I've developed a real a love for it, but it kind of turns your brain inside out a little bit in, in, in some of the concepts that you have to, to discuss and develop. And so what I decided to do as an antidote to that is I thought, I'm going to go out and talk to regular people, just people who have lived, as long as they've lived 65 years on this planet, they've got had a chance to put it all together and kind of figure life out. And I'm going to interview over 300 people between the age of 65 and 100. I'm going to ask them a bunch of questions about life, about their experiences, about what advice they would give, mistakes they've made. And so I set out on a journey. It was just a personal journey for me. I just wanted to learn from people. And, and I met some of the most wonderful, fantastic people that just changed my life in ways that I could, uh, I'll never be able to repay. So that's how the, the impetus for the book came about. Where did you find the people? Were, you, were they all Vancouver-based? Were they, or did you across the country? How did you uh, approach people? Basically, it was, it was quite difficult to get interviews because a lot of people didn't trust that I was being honest and I just wanted to ask them about their advice and about the things that they've done. They still thought I was going to pitch them for a vacuum cleaner or, or something at the end of the interviews. Interview. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> they, they did. They were very, very uh, skeptical about what my purpose was. I need a gig. And, and by the way, I need a gig. You know anybody? Yeah, right. yeah. exactly. So. So basically, uh, what I had to do was get clearances. About a third of the people that I asked to interview just said, no, I'm not interested in your survey. Another third were 
were somewhat uh, skeptical and somewhat resistant, but I, I broke through that. And then another third were quite willing. So I got some clearances. So for example, in Tawasin at Care Homes, at Langley Lodge, different places like that, I would go to the uh, to the administration and I'd get clearance and I had references and whatnot. And then I had some personal references and over 300 was a lot of interviews. I mean, I really had to do, it took me two and a half years because the interviews were about an hour long each, but I wanted a substantial number of people to get a good cross section so I could collate the statistics and, and really give some substance to my book. So I got the top 10 lists of the questions that I asked. So for example, if I asked people, what are your top 10 regret, you know, what are your regrets? What do you regret in life? I have a statistical analysis of all that and the top answers and and explanations of that. Well, why don't we talk about that a little bit, you know, because that's a, certainly an interest of people listening to this conversation for sure will be what are some of people's regrets and, and what were, what made them happy? What did they get to? So what did you learn interviewing and having those questions put out to that many people of that age group? What have, what have you learned along the way for yourself? What would you share with the audience? Lots and lots of things to share. I I ask people what the regrets are. It's, it's interesting. 20% of the people that I interviewed said they had no regrets. Said, you know what? I lived my life the best I could, the way I wanted. I followed my passions. I have no regrets. It all worked out for me. I thought that was quite high, but I was happy to hear that because people would typically say, you know, if I had to change things, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change much. It was basically good. I followed what I wanted to do. I'm a happy guy or a happy, happy lady. When it came to the regrets, I said, uh, I asked people, what, what are the things you regret? The number one regret by a mile was not enough education. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, it came up over and over again. And, and what happened, though, I think it was more of a, a circumstance of the time because a lot of people were raised during the Depression or during the Second World War. The, those things interrupted plans for family, plans for education. Uh, the other thing is, is that at that time you could get a job and you could work and make good money. You didn't need to a four-year college degree for many jobs that paid well. So there were a number of circumstances that I think mitigate the fact that people felt bad. Some people were even apologetic about lack of education. Isn't that interesting? The, you're right. Back in those days, it was, and many of them probably had a background in farming and came off the farm into the big city and went to work from that point of view where they just had to make a living. They're often getting married at a relatively young age, having children. So really their focus was just getting to work. Uh, yeah. So th that's an interesting part of time. When you talk about regrets, you know, I remember, uh, wasn't that, well, it was a few years ago now that somebody asked me, you know, do you have any regrets, Patrick? And I go, not really. I think I've been on my journey. I am where I am today. And, and I would have probably taken a slightly different path. And they looked at me and they said, yeah, but then you wouldn't be here. And I thought that was yeah. quite, quite a, uh, that was a cool response to my answer. But I realized that in my life right now, I, I have no regrets. I, I'm pretty clear in that I'm making decisions. When you were asking people uh, about regrets, were they pretty, were they fairly, I guess, you know, thoughtful around it or was it more of a reactive answer or, or would you even, I don't know, maybe that's not even the right question, but how was your experience of asking people around regrets? Was it because where they sat today at, let's say 65 or 80 years old, that they weren't where they wanted to be at, at that point in their life? 
Yeah, I'm not so I'm not sure it was that so much as they probably just wished that they had different opportunities. I think mm. that that some of them were victims of circumstance. You know, if you're if it's the 1930s, I mean, keep in mind the people I interviewed were between were born between 1907 and 1942, I guess it would be, because it was uh, 2007 to nine that I did the interviews. So, so these people, their lives were interrupted by circumstances over which they had no control. And so the choice between going to school and feeding your kids is not really a choice. So many of them were, were in some senses victims of circumstance, although they didn't seem to think that they were, that they were put upon in any way that they didn't they weren't able to deal with. It's just that they wish if they'd got, had gone back that they could have had more education. But again, I pointed out to them that it's something that's more available, perhaps more necessary nowadays than it was in their time. And they were educated in other ways at work or through life experience. Sure. Cool. What else, what else showed up in those interviews, Dan? What was, you know, the standout, the regret one, I think is a great question. Uh, What else did you have on your list of questions that you kind of picked up on? Well, I was, uh, one of the questions I asked people was, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to deal with? Because I thought that, you know, adversity makes us grow. It makes us stronger in some ways. For some of us, it beats us down. But so I asked, uh, what's the hardest thing you've ever had to deal with? And of course, the death of a spouse is kind of an obvious answer, just simply because the people were advanced in their age and many of them had lost a spouse. So that was the number one answer. But just the death of a spouse or a child or family or friends, you know, losing people that you care about, uh, a surprising 11% of the people that I interviewed had lost a child. So um, that that was real challenging. And then, and then, so we have these things in life where you really have to to redefine what what life is. If you go through a tragedy like that, and some of your listeners certainly have, then you ask yourself. You're forced to ask yourself, well, what does life mean? Where do I go from here? How can I be successful in spite of the fact that these things have happened to me, or that this terrible thing has happened to me? You know, I had a friend years ago that lost a child, and that is a really really big deal. And you know, I can't imagine it just scares me to even think that that could happen. Was there any follow-up in terms of that conversation that you might've had with him, Dan? I know he said after he did the research, how close he and his wife came to divorcing and all the things that they got through it all. But ultimately what they learned in losing a child is that it's something, it's pretty ridiculous. It's like 80% of couples that lose a child ultimately end up in divorce. Did you, were, did you have yeah. any of those kind of conversations, Dan? Yes. I, I, my conversations, fortunately for me, were in-depth. So some of them lasted an hour, some were longer. You know, I, I asked a lot of questions. In my book, I have the questionnaire that I used as a guideline for the people that I interviewed. So a lot of the interviews were quite lengthy, and we got to dig into a lot of those very deeply. And in terms of grief, I, I have a counseling background, so that was really helpful. But in terms of grief, one of the things that I that I knew beforehand was people deal with it differently. So if you're dealing with a couple, if you're interviewing a couple and it's a, a husband and wife, the wife would have dealt with it differently than the husband dealt with it. So I was able to sort of draw that out a little bit. And, and fortunately, the people that I had spoken to were able to stay together. But I know the statistic that you're talking about, that, that it really does lead to a, a breakdown and and families come apart because of it. In the cases that I was dealing with, I, I didn't see that and I didn't talk to them 
I didn't have any subsequent visits simply because my interviews were anonymous. I wanted people to give me the, the real goods and I wanted people to open up. So part of the promise I made was every interview was anonymous. I only used first names and I never kept track of the people that I interviewed so that there would be nothing brought back to them. Mm. Oh, good strategy. So people were really open to having great conversations and dig into Yeah, most people were. So some people were still guarded, but most people were were open, yes. And that's what I wanted. I needed. And it wasn't so much the details of stories. I wasn't looking for, you know, I worked on the farm. We had to, you know, bale hay and, and those kinds of things. I wanted to know the, the, the sort of psychological aspect of it, you know, the things that you went through. How did it affect the way you see the world? How did it affect your relationships? Those kinds of things. So I needed people to be transparent and be willing to engage. You know, one of the premises for this podcast is seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. And I'm often really amazed by them because I meet so many people in, in the work that I do and the businesses that I own. And I'm, I'm blown away how these seemingly just common everyday people are exceptionally successful and have done amazing things. And I don't just mean financially, by the way, just who, how they occur in the world. And, and certainly that's one of the reasons that I wanted you on this show and when you were interviewing the people that you were interviewing, the, did you come across that? Did you find some people that you're going, wow, this is just truly amazing, this story of what you've accomplished, the adversity you've overcome, or, or what you were able to contribute? Did you, did you find lots of stories like that or a number of them? I certainly did. And, and people that you wouldn't think, very unassuming people. I remember one lady was 94 years old in a wheelchair, and you just the kind of person you would walk past on the street or walk past in a, in a care home and just not even give a second thought to. And I sat down and spoke with her for over an hour and she absolutely blew me away. And sometimes success is not so much what you achieve, but what you overcome. And so she told me stories about being in Europe during the Second World War and how she got her kids out of Europe and how she she was uh, had to be strong to care for her children and to look after her family and then to come to North America with basically nothing and then achieve the, you know, the things that she had achieved. Now, this wasn't a rich person financially, but this was a rich person in the sense that she was very successful in what she had overcome and, and had my respect, immense respect for her. Somebody like that, when you review the question, any regrets, do you recall an answer to that question? Yeah, specifically, it's funny because that, that generation, you know, they often call that the greatest generation, right? That went through the Second World War and assured our freedom and, and fought to uh, Nazi Germany. A lot of those people were not complainers. You know, they went through hell on earth. They'll sit there and tell you a, a complete litany of things that they went through and, and hell on earth, essentially. And with this sort of acceptance, this is the position I was put in. I was put in this, this world at this particular time in this particular location. And that's what I had to deal with. And I just did my best and I fought through it. I overcame it and I stepped up. So I used to, I used to ask people at the end, you know, would you say that you had a good life or, or would you say that you had a happy life? And several people said, no, I wouldn't say I had a happy life, but I had a good life. And the distinction kind of got me, but what I think it was is that they say, look, life was hard. Life wasn't easy. And I went through a lot of difficult things because of my circumstance and, and the, the time that I was born in. But I stepped up. I did the right things. I looked after my kids. I, I did the things in life that I needed to do. I built character. I was successful 
and it was good. It wasn't happy. I wasn't skipping through the forest, but it was good. Yeah, I think that we sometimes, if you're born in Canada, you, we we can never have the same appreciation of what we've normalized. You know, I grew up yeah. and I got to know just a number of people, that, you know, immigrants that came from Hungary, from Germany, from Italy, and they shared stories of what they went through during the war and what they got here. So to your point, maybe it wasn't a happy life in the context of happy, but they could find it pretty easy to be happy. But this was such a good life compared to what they had come from. And often because I do, you know, I often will do a gratitude journal and, and just really get grounded in what's awesome and what's great in my life. And when you consider the stories of many of the immigrants into Canada. I mean, it's just mind blowing what they went through. And you experienced that with that interview you did with your 94 year old lady. Yeah. And what she went through. There was very little sense of entitlement. And one of the best quotes that I got, cause I was looking for gems, you know, when I say that in the beginning of the book that, uh, I don't consider myself a scholar, even though I've spent most of my life in some form of study or other, but I was a gem hunter. I was always looking for those gems of information and uh, things that people would say that would really, really sort of resonate with me. And one, several people said it in different ways, but they said, I had to learn how to be tough without being hard. And it really, really struck me because some people are hard because I asked one lady, uh, most of the people that I interviewed, 64% were women and 36% were men. I'm not sure why that worked out. I think the women were more available and more willing. But the women said that. And I asked because I said, how come some older men seem so hard? And she said basically that they go through, that they, they had very hard lives. They worked in very difficult circumstances. They had a lot of pressure on them. And then she backed that up by saying, I had a hard life as well, but I had to learn how to be tough without being hard. What a great quote. Love that. Really good. Man, really that, good. <laughs> I also I almost forgot to ask you another question because I was kind of <laughs> contemplating on that one a little bit. Mm -hmm. So what else did you learn along the way? I mean, you're interviewing these individuals. Did you see patterns in those people that were didn't have regrets or that they were they had a happy life? Was there something different about them versus others if you were to compare the data? Well, some people think that they just got lucky, right? I mean, some, some bad things happen. Some people get cancer. Some people get in a car accident. Some people have a parent that dies when they're young. I mean, some people just have circumstantially have things happen to them. Mm -hmm. So some people just felt that they were lucky. A couple of people said, you know, I, I just never had any tragedy in my life. I was very fortunate, you know, so I feel thankful for that. But the one interesting thing about my book is that I learned quite a few things that I didn't expect to learn, mm -hmm. which was quite interesting. So for example... I learned to see the young person in the older person very quickly, which was kind of a neat experience because when you sit down with someone who might be 90 years old, that's, that's quite an older person, right? And so you're wondering how you can relate to that person. But once you start to draw that person out and say, well, tell me about when you were 15, you know, tell me about when you were 20, what you did. And then you see the sparkle in their eye and they start talking about it and they're reliving when they were 20. So what I learned that I didn't expect to learn is that you learn to see the young person in the older person very quickly. After a few dozen interviews, you start saying, okay, wait a second, this person might be 90 years old, but that's me, I'm looking in the mirror. This is me 50 years from now. And we're all on the same kind of conveyor belt. She's just farther along on that conveyor belt than I am, but we're all people. So I really learned how to understand the older person and see the younger person in the older person and realize that we're all just part of humanity and we're all 
quite the same in many ways. So through that interview process and writing your book 10 years ago, what kind of an impact did it have on your own life, Dan? I mean, you you certainly are a study, you know, you study, you know, philosophy and divinity and you're well-educated and you've really been on that, that path of self-reflection, I'm sure, and supporting others, helping others. What, what have you learned when you, after you wrote that book, what did you walk away with for yourself that did it, did it change you? Did it, did it give you a greater appreciation for your life? What was it for you? Yeah, it did. It did because first of all, with education, to me, life is education. So I've, I've looked at a formal education as just a part of my life. It's not something I'm not a scholar. I'm not a professor. I'm, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm just a, a student of life. And that was part of being a student of life. So I learned in some ways, in, in certain terms of pragmatics and practical ways, I learned more from the people that I did with my interviews than I did from the formal education. Most of what you learn in formal education, certainly in my experience, you forget anyways. I mean, you, you read the books, you write the tests and you go through it and then, and then some of it uh, remains with you, but a lot of it just goes by the by because you, uh, you just write the test and forget most yeah. of it. So, Use it, or so lose it. it did. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, your brain can only hold so much information sure. in the front of your brain that you're going to use anyway. But, but really the people, what, if, what affected me more than anything was these people, they didn't complain. They thought that building character was more important than building wealth because character is wealth in a sense. And so if you have some, if you're, if you're set up financially, that's great. If you have status, that's great. But if you don't have character that goes along with that, then those things are all diminished because of that. So they worked hard. They didn't think that the world owed them anything. They were willing to deal with hardship without complaining. They allowed themselves to build character through hardship because it's, it's the adversity in life that builds our character, right? I mean, it's, if everything goes along smoothly and you're just skipping through the forest and all the bills are paid and you got nothing to worry about, that, that's not a character building experience, even though it might seem nice. So their adversity helped to build their character and it was really important to them. So it really was life-changing from that perspective, for sure. And what about on the financial side of it? Because... We often talk, I mean, this podcast called The Everyday Millionaire, and lots of this is about helping people achieve lifestyle, financial certainty, you know, success financially to create a great lifestyle. And when you're interviewing these individuals, this part of their lives, how much of them shared how important money was to them or not to them? Or how was that for you? Did you come across some people that had been pretty financially successful? Yes, I certainly did. And one thing I will say is that a lot of people that I interviewed had not set themselves up for retirement. And a lot of them mentioned that. And they said that retirement kind of snuck up on them, that they, that they regretted not setting themselves up financially better because self-reliance is important. And I don't, it's not a matter of hoarding or, or trying to get as much as you can for yourself in some sort of underhanded way, it's being set up. And a lot of them regretted that. They said, you know, I was in my fifties and things were going good. I was making a great wage. And then I turn around and I'm in my late sixties. I don't have a job anymore. The money's not coming in like it did. I didn't have enough investments or things to carry me through. So I just, if I could go back, I would have thought more about it when I was in my forties and fifties and even into my sixties to set myself up better. So I could be more self-reliant financially. 
And really, self-reliance is important. Uh, that's part of what makes our country strong is when you have people that are financially self-reliant, then those people don't need to count on the government as much to look after them. And I think that's important. And, and it ties into counseling too, if I may. Really, counseling comes down to empowerment, that people are empowered. You know, you're empowered to think for yourself. You're emotionally empowered to to set your own course. You're financially empowered. Empowerment is really, in all the years that I studied counseling and related issues, was the word that kept coming up over and over again. And there's a strong financial component to empowerment and self-reliance. It's interesting that you bring up that some of the people that you talked to were, you know, not financially prepared as they went into retirement. So of course, with the Real Estate Investment Network, and there's many listeners on the call or on this particular podcast, sorry, that would understand that RAIN is about creating a future financial certainty through investing in real estate. As an organization, we stand in front of thousands of people every year and encourage and coach and create resources for people to be successful and to get financially prepared and to create a financially certain future. That is really our mission is financial freedom by design. That's one of our missions. Yeah. And I'm often, I guess, taken aback by the number of people who want that and aren't willing to do the work. So I, I, I know this is off topic in that regard, but as you talk to 65 and older people, you know, many of them coming back to you. For me, it's just a message for anybody listening to this is that it is so incredibly important to take the time to be prepared, to do the work, to sit down and look at your financial future and be prepared for the age that you're going to eventually be where you're not in the, in the position to work or to create revenue. So it's interesting that given what we do and your experience in all these interviews that that showed up. Yeah, I think it was something that people were acutely aware of and in terms of advice to younger people saying that old age sneaks up on you. You know, they say life is short because when you look back, if you're if you're 60 years old, then that 60 years is just a blip. You just look back and you see it all in one in one fell swoop. So a lot of people said old age snuck up on me. I looked in the mirror one day and I thought, well, who's that old person? Well, wait a second. That's me. And so it comes up quickly. And you don't have the time. I think that a lot of them talked about when you're in your 40s and your 50s and even into your early 60s, you have a confidence, you have a swagger, you're working, you got good paychecks coming in, the bills are paid, you might buy and sell things. But when you when you get to your late 60s or early 70s, if your, your earning power goes down, if you're just a straight wage earner person and you don't have investments that are going to serve you beyond that, you count on the government. So a lot of them said it snuck up on them. They just didn't think about it. So one of the pieces of advice that came out of that is think about it. And that's obviously what you're getting at here with, with rain. A hundred percent, you know, and, and at 60, I'm, I'm actually blown away by how youthful I feel at 60 years old. And, and I'm, I think that I, you know, the one thing that I did well was I, I was very, very focused on health and wellness, mental, emotional, physical. I ate, I continued to eat well. I continued to train, work out. And, and although I've certainly slowed down a little bit in terms of my intensity around my physical activity, I'm, I, I don't have an ache or a, a pain anywhere really. And, and I'm, so I'm blessed to be experiencing 60 
like I still yeah. feel I still feel 30 and and at some point I view myself as being you know probably in my early 30s so that's really yeah. that's really great but having said that those interviews that you did gosh I've had a very blessed life compared to a, an immigrant that came over from a country and had to start from scratch with no support no family had to create a a world so it's it's certainly different than that kind of cross section of people that you would have interviewed back then yeah, and good for you for doing that. I, I applaud that. I mean, it, to be able to to age gracefully and and be in good shape. I often tell the guys that I train with. I I train at the boxing club and the martial arts club two or three days a week, and I often tell the young guys. I say my my hope and prayer for you is that you can be as healthy and as engaged and active as I am when you're my age, because uh, lots of people aren't. But even to the financial, I want to say this, you know, I think it's important not to step over it, Dan, is, is that, you know, how old are you now? You're, are you 50? 57. 57. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, gosh, you know, you're like me that way. You're, I mean, you're, you're blessed to be, you know, you you got good genetics for sure. I always say, well, it's all, it's part of good genes, but really, I mean, you spent your life no different than I did. You actually prepared and you're constantly preparing yourself for aging gracefully, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we're not going to lay yeah. in bed dying of nothing, but we're certainly going to enjoy the life along the way. I'm, for me, it's not really about living longer, although I hope and I plan on living to 110. Ultimately, I want the quality of my life to be excellent right up to the day I die. And so yeah. there is a, a plan that has to be in place there. And I think it's important that as much as we talk about financial success and success in business and all of those things that go with that, success is nothing without your health. And you've got to make a concerted focused effort. You got to do it intentionally. It just can't happen. And when you're 20, you're gosh, even early thirties, you're often just indestructible or that's the sense that you have. So I think it's just an important message to get out there. Well, absolutely. And, and we, again, we have guys come into the gym all the time, but they're successful in one area and some of them are financially very successful, but they're out of shape, they're overweight, their doctor's not happy with them and they're not going to live very long. So all the uh, work that they've done, the resources that they have, the wealth that they've built, they're not even going to enjoy it because they're not going to be able to because they're, they're overweight, out of shape, they've got issues. Uh, and so one of the things I would say, there were some people that I interviewed that, that were victims of circumstance. You know, in the past, a lot of people had to, especially the men, had to work in environments where there was asbestos, where there was breathing problems. Uh, you know, they would, they would work in... Uh, welding, for example, or work in shops where there wasn't proper protection and stuff. One of the things we have nowadays is a lot more protection for workers because I did interview a number of men who were just simply suffering because of their job and because of the things they were forced to do without proper hearing protection, breathing protection, and other protections on their job. And we can't step over that. Once again, is that there was that time where that was really prevalent and and there yeah. weren't the working conditions that we insist on today on the other side of it dan when you if you came across some people that were financially well you know there's the old you know that cliche that nobody ever laid on their deathbed saying i wish i would have spent more time at the office did you come across those kinds of stories where people were saying that i created wealth and i created money and and i realized that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be what any of those Absolutely. types of conversations yeah Absolutely. One of the best quotes that I got was from a lady. I interviewed a lady in an apartment in Tawasson 
completely jammed full of furniture. And I said, what do you regret in life? She said, you know, I spent my whole life. I was a real estate agent. I made piles of money. I owned big, beautiful homes. And she said, I, I did that at the expense of spending time with my kids and, and spending time building relationships. And she said, now I'm in this apartment by myself. My kids are pursuing the same path that I pursued and just focused on wealth and, and not on the other things. And she said, the one thing I learned in life is that it's better to sit on an old couch and relate to somebody than sit on a new couch by yourself. Mm. Another great one. Yeah. And I thought, bingo, that's the kind of things I was looking for. And again, it's not to disparage the building of wealth. If people are self-reliant and have done well, that's a great thing. You know, my brother once said that to me, you know, would it be better if, if people were poor, if you had a country where most people didn't have wealth or were poor? No, that wouldn't be a better country. That'd be a worse country as exhibited by many countries around the world when, where that is the case. So uh, there was nothing disparaging about uh, being self-reliant and building some wealth and building some income that those are all positive things. But her point was that it goes along with the relationships and with caring about other people and with not being focused on strictly material things. That was her uh, criticism of herself. I think I can ask you this question in, because of your background and your education. When you look at that 65 to or hundred year old that you met, what did you discover about ego? Where do you see ego in the place of somebody that was now at that age? They weren't real preachy. You know, I was I was surprised. I, I thought I would get some finger wagging and those kinds of things because one of the questions I asked was, what advice would you give to young people if you were to pass it on? Because that was the whole idea of it was I wanted to get information from an older generation and pass it on to a younger generation. And there wasn't a lot of finger wagging. You know, a lot of those people had made mistakes and some of them even you confessed some of those mistakes to me. So I learned that that they were humble that they were not entitled. There was almost no entitlement to the, the odd time, but really none. So, and humble about their own mistakes and, and the fact that they'd learned from them and just thankful to be alive and to have lived the life that they did live, even as, as difficult as it was at times. So having gone through all these, you know, writing your book, is there advice that you would give to your 20 year old self now? What would it be if it was to ask you, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? What would it be? Well, one of the things that came up over and over again was trying to make some plans, right? There was, there was basically two camps of people. Some people, I said, cause I asked them, you know, did you have a plan in life? And, and a lot of people just said, you know what? No, I didn't really have a plan. I mean, I, I met a girl, we got married. I, my brother-in-law worked at the mill and I got a job there and it paid pretty good money. I didn't have any plan. So one of the things that came up was try to set some form of a plan out for yourself. Like you can't predict everything that's going to come up, but you can have some plans. And, and generally those would be, you know, follow your passions, find the things that you like, do those things. A lot of the women that I talk to, uh, my, my book has a lot of sort of, I don't want to say feminist, but, but women's empowerment issues in it because of the women that I interviewed. They weren't uh, feminists in the sense of man-hating feminists, but they wanted more options in life. And so a lot of the women said, you know, in those days, I went from my father's house to my husband's house and I never found myself in between that. So the, the women especially gave advice to younger women saying, find out who you are, develop your own personality, your own goals, your own dreams, your own desires, and really figure out who you are. And then you're able to give yourself over to whatever situation you want, be it marriage, family, career, 
the arts. A lot of the women said, you know, I really wanted to play piano. I wanted to act in little theater. I wasn't able to do it because I was third. It was my husband first, my kids second, and I was always third. And I got really tired of being third. So but have a plan and find out who you are and put yourself first in some circumstances, especially when it comes to developing your own character and your own desires and your own goals. You know, it's interesting without digressing too far is that's a common, I find that common with women in general, especially moms and, you know, where they set themselves outside of, they set their themselves as a lower priority. You know, the kids come first, yeah. the community, the parents, all of those things come first. And I'm blessed. My wife, uh, Stephanie, who is a performance coach and who's done some remarkable, remarkable things in, in her life and our life. You know, she taught me early on in our relationship is that women, and she coaches this all the time, they are the hub of the world. They're the hub of their world generally. And it really is a case is that I discovered with Stephanie is that the better she looks after herself, the better she is capable and the more capable she is of looking after our world. And if I've learned nothing else, I believe, this is my own learning along the way, is it is really a case of, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first in order to help others. And this is really a yeah. case for, I think, for moms and, and women in general is because that's who they are. I'm a, a huge uh, proponent of women in business and life and feminist. And I'm all of those things because I think women are so powerful. But I do see where they put themselves second, third, fifth. And the realization that I think so many women need to get to is, Look after yourself, whatever that is. And it could be anything of the health and pedicures and manicures, whatever that might be, or working out or your spiritual journey or whatever that might be for you. But for women, it is so incredibly important that if they look after themselves, gosh, they got so much capacity to look after their children and look after their families and look after their community. And that's what I heard in that conversation. I applaud that. And, and, and I think that's true of all of us. You know, sure. the best thing you can do for the world is to be the best you that you can be. And then you're able to give to the world. And, and from that perspective, I think that, that the world is a better place now, especially for, for some women that, that were sort of thrust into those situations in the past. And they didn't complain about it. But I think that the fact that now women have more opportunities to pursue their goals and the things that they want to do, that is a great thing. And, and I'm a proponent of that. And would support that in every way that I can. So when you look at writing the book 10 years ago and, and you had the reasons that you had to do it, but what was the message or what would you hope that readers got out of the book? And, and this isn't, this podcast was never about promoting your book, although I think it's really great. What did you hope your readers would get out of the book then? Well, I think a lot of people got different things out of it. Like, for example, I asked people you know, what, what's the top 10 pieces of advice. So some people that have taken the book have, have given the top 10 list to their young people so they could pass on the, the advice. Uh, I've done wellness and aging seminars because I ask people, what's the hardest part about getting older? And then what's the best part about getting older? And then how do you deal with the most difficult parts of getting older? So there was a big component of that. You know, the wellness and aging component was uh, great. The uh, how keys to a happy life. I asked people, are you happy? Yes, no. You know, 80% uh, of the people I interviewed said, yes, they're happy. 17% uh, of the people said 50-50 and 3% said no. And then I asked them, well, why are you happy? What, what are the things in your life that made you happy? And I have the top 10 uh, answers to that. Happy marriage. You know, if, if people were happily married for a long time, I'd ask them, well, 
do you have a happy marriage? If they said yes, I said, well, what made it happy? And then I'd go down the list for there too. In that question, was there anything stand out? What made them happy? Was there was there some some lessons that you gleaned from it that really stuck out for you and, and are memorable? Certainly. The interesting thing about marriage was when I asked them, are you happily married? And they said, yes. And then I said, why? I thought that the number one answer intuitively would be love. You know, I love this person. But that wasn't the number one answer, surprisingly, because some people said, well, I loved him. I just couldn't live with him. I mean, he, I thought he was a fantastic person. I just, we weren't, we weren't compatible. So the number one answer was compatibility, that people that managed to stay in long-term relationships were compatible. They kind of saw the world in the same way. They liked to do the same things. Uh, they, they were just compatible with each other's company. And so compatibility was the number one answer to a happy marriage. And it really made me think about things a little differently. I, I had done the marriage counseling component when I was studying counseling, and, and, uh, but I'd never had that sort of a pragmatic look at it in, in that sense. Compatibility is extremely important. After writing the book, how did your life change? Did you actually come away from it and go, I've got to make some changes in my life? Not per se, because I'd already kind of gone through all those, like like your checklist and stuff. You know, I had gone through all that. And then, of course, when you study counseling, you have to be in counseling and you have to have mentors and people who. So I had gone through that list. You know, what changed my life in a way that I, I had a lot more respect for older people. Not that I disrespected them before that, but I realized they're just me and you. Those people are us. Mm -hmm. So I, I had more of an us rather than a we they mentality. I was more thankful. I was thankful for the life that I have. The more you study history, the more thankful everyone should be. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in the best time of history. We've got more uh, wealth and opportunity and, and privilege than virtually anyone who has lived, and even more so than, than the generation that I interviewed. So yeah, I was more thankful. I was more humble. I was a little more soft-hearted towards the plight that, that some people were thrust into. I mean, it, you can imagine that for yourself. If, if you were born prior to the Second World War, or if you were a, a fighting age at the Second World War, your life would have been completely different and you would have had nothing to do to say about it. You just had to go with the circumstance. As we kind of wind down the show a little bit and start to slow down, and I want to focus a little bit more on you, Dan, I got the book and all the rest of it, and that's great. And I would encourage anybody to, to, uh, grab the book, uh, I've, uh, regrets, um, They've had a few. <laughs> you can yeah, get that on, it's on, on Amazon. Chapter. Amazon, yeah. You can get it on Amazon, yeah. yeah. Uh, Amazon.com and uh, Dan Hare regrets. They've had a few. Great. So I'd like to dig in a little bit about your, a, a bit of a scholar, a bit of a philosopher. What's a book that you often recommend or gift to people? <laughs> Uh, well, I do a lot in Christian apologetics. I do a lot in philosophy still. I, I read a book last couple, a couple of years ago called The Devil's Delusion by David Berlinski, which is one of the top 10 books. I mean, I've read thousands of books in my life, uh, and that's in the top 10. talks about the scientific pretensions and, and how scientists are the new sort of priests, and, and they make pronouncements that are, are beyond the scope of science. That, that was a really interesting read, so I really enjoyed that. I read a lot of fiction when I was doing my, my undergrad degree in English Lit, but uh, I'm really a nonfiction guy now, and I like to read uh, books about various different things. But that one in particular is, is one that I uh, just recently, in the last couple of years, just really stood me on my head full of really some interesting stuff. As you look into your future, a question that I've been asked and, and I'd like to ask is, what would you like to congratulate yourself 
you know, your future self for achieving. I mean, you wrote the book and congratulations and, and I'm sure you're very, and I, well, you should be very proud of it. What about your future self? What have you got? What would you like to congratulate your future self on achieving? It was really, really important to me to be a good dad to my kids. And one of the most important things in my life is having my kids respect me and my daughter and my son do respect me. And that's more important than really anything else. Um, you know, my wife respects me too, and I appreciate that. And, and of course, we've been married many years. So the other things were just part of living my life. I, I, I guess I would congratulate myself in one sense of following the things that mattered to me. I've always tried to do things that matter to me. And so if it's if it's education, if it's spending time with my kids, you know, I spent tons of time with my kids because it really mattered to me. In counseling, I learned that the, the, the one counseling professor said, if you want to find out what matters to people, find out where they spend their money and their time. So you just have to ask them where they spend those two things and then you'll know what matters to them. So what mattered to me was was being a good dad and the respect that I have from my kids really means a lot to me. What's your favorite quote? Because you've read a lot, but have you got a have you got a favorite quote? Yeah, I just can't think of anything off the top of my head. A lot of the quotes that I got from from my book, the ones that I shared with you about about on the couch and and those kinds of things, are just important keeping your mind your mind is like a steering wheel. You've got to keep your hands on the wheel. Those kinds of things really made a difference to me. And and through the process of of living according to those quotes have have meant a lot to me and and really changed my life more than any sort of in-depth intellectual pursuit just the the best lessons in life are the simple ones how about that for a quote that's a good one the best yeah and they, and it's really true too i i don't it's not just a a platitude it's it's really true the best lessons that we learn in life and i remember reading the book everything i ever really needed to know i learned in kindergarten i read those year, books years ago <laughs> good one. The, yeah. great books what i consistently hear from people that have a, a cool life and a great life is they they have some kind of a morning routine a morning practice or i shouldn't even say morning some is evening do you have i mean you're you're in the gym you're working out you you study martial arts which is beyond the physical is also some mental stuff that goes with that emo, emotional oh, yeah. mindset all those things yeah what's what is your routine do you have a routine during throughout the day that you kind of follow along with that you use to look after yourself or that supports you and and being clear and and being able to contribute well, I always make sure I get enough sleep. I'm not a guy that can last. You know, some people say I can live on four or five hours sleep. I always make sure I have a good night's sleep. I I have my desk and I have my space. So I've got my TV, I got my computer, I got my instruments, I got my books, I got all the things that make me happy, and the Yogi Bear behind me because that reminds me of my daughter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my routine. So I I do. I'm I'm an odd guy that way. I sit up at my desk until two o'clock in the morning every night. So my wife goes to bed at nine. We're totally the opposite. She's I'm a, I'm a night owl musician. She's a, a morning person. She gets up at five in the morning, goes to bed at nine at night. I go to bed at two in the morning, get up at ten, typically. Although I got up a little early this morning for you, but that's okay. <laughs> Thank uh, you for so, that. Thank you for that. Yeah, no worries. So, so I do at night. I I practice my songs. I I read the books that I'm reading. I I stay up on. I'm very interested in politics, especially U.S. politics. So I follow that very closely. So I have my routine, and I and I stay up till two in the morning. But I don't lie on the couch. I sit at my desk and do stuff because I'm a doer. I like to do things. That's just the way I I roll. I uh, I hear more and more from 
people that I interview that sleep is important. And although I never wore the badge of honor as a limited amount of sleep is what I can do, I find that I live consistently in about seven hours and it doesn't really matter what time I go to bed, you know, six and a half to seven hours later, I'm going to wake up. I did, uh, I did, I do note that occasionally I'll get eight hours or eight and a half hours, but I've had to have had a very uh, busy week, mentally draining, even emotionally draining. And then my body just goes, okay, you need to sleep. And I always appreciate it. I always wake up going, ah, that's so much better. (laughs) But I, uh, you know, it's interesting that you bring up your wife. My wife is also a bit of a night owl and, and she has no problem going to bed a little bit later and, and gosh, you know, she'll. She doesn't move the whole night. I'm I'm a little bit more uh, active that way, but I'm a 5 a.m. guy. I love my mornings. I own them, and they're mine. Don't don't encroach <laughs> on my mornings. You know, I get cranky if you do. So I'm doing it at five well, o'clock in the morning. What you're doing at two o'clock in the morning. So we're not that far apart. <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's why musicians always say good morning, no matter what time of day it is. It's always good morning when you're a musician. (laughs) That's great. There's more I want to dig into a little bit with you. You know, I'm a bit of a, I'm philosophical in my life, and I've really recently taken on the study of stoicism stoicism more than I have in in the past. Do you find... Is that of interest to you, or do you find yourself being quite stoic? Do you do you kind of follow along with a Marcus Aurelius or a Seneca or a, in that whole world of leaders at that time? I actually interviewed a couple of people that were into stoicism. Yes, I, I, it's never been a lifestyle or or a, a, a sort of mode of thought that I've lived by. I'm, I'm a Christian, so I mm-hmm. my I live by Christian Christian principles in in as much as I can. Uh, but certainly, it was a, it's a positive frame of mind and I had nothing uh, to say against it, but that's, it's not my, uh, not my frame of reference. No. You're a pretty chill guy. You know, how do you deal with things that piss you off? How do you deal with anger? How do you deal with, or do you, what's your view of the world when stuff really annoys you? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty intense. I've, I was, I was always a very intense kid and, and, uh, you know, I would say that intensity has, you know, in English lit, you know, we used to talk about the tragic flaw. So when you're studying a character in a play, there would be the tragic flaw. And that would be the person's best trait is also their worst trait. So, for example, if you have someone that's real passionate, they, they're loving, they're passionate, they pursue their goals, they do everything else. But on the, the, the negative side of that is they can be angry and frustrated and, you know, punch the steering wheel when they're driving and all those things. So that's their tragic flaw. On the flip side, you have people that are pretty chill all the time and then, you know, they can lack passion, they can lack drive for doing things. So so I've been on the more intense side. But you know what? It's really, really, really important to me to be a good person. Like that that matters to me. If you, if you want to talk about what it means to be successful, I don't care what you have, what you've done. If you're not a good person, I don't, would never consider you a success. And so despite my intensity, and of course it, it, it rounds off when you get older, which is nice, uh, despite my intensity and my, my propensity towards uh, being overly passionate or overly heated or ang- getting angry, uh, I've really tried to curb that off over the years. And I've, and I've been successful at it, but just, just try to be a good person and, and try to be uh, empathetic and those kinds of things. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. <laughs> it a, is a, a challenge. It is. Okay, some rapid fire questions. We want to have some fun with this. What's your favorite swear word? <laughs> I try not to swear, not very often, but when I'm when I'm driving, uh, you know, it uh, it happens sometimes. So uh, we'll go with the standard. 
<laughs> You'll drop an F-bomb even... Yeah, yeah okay, great. Yeah, okay. I, I, try not to. I, I know it's hard for you even on this podcast, so that's <laughs> funny. Uh, uh, what profession, other than you know what you're doing, what would you like to attempt? Other than being a musician, yeah. I, I suppose I would have... Uh, Maybe a teacher. I, I did enjoy teaching English. I, I taught for a bit. So teaching, yeah. So pretty much you're doing all what you want to do anyways. I am, yeah. Okay. So Good for you. And I teach martial arts too, which I really enjoy. Cool. What do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Oh, welcome. <laughs> I'm I'm a humble guy. So uh, yeah, just, just welcome. On a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? Uh, not just three. Yeah, good. You know, that's a great answer, by the way. Most people put themselves at 10s and 12s. What are you just not very good at, Dan? Uh, drawing. I, I've had some friends that are artists that can draw. Uh, I'm terrible at that. Absolutely terrible. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Uh, my desk. But my desk is messy right now, so I should, yeah. My, <laughs> so my you desk. should clean it? Good one. <laughs> yeah, sure. Good one. Okay, so I, I've never asked a musician on this particular podcast this question. What's your favorite tune? It's Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas. I've asked that that song be played in its entirety at my funeral. It's, it's just the best song ever written as far as I'm concerned. Carry On Wayward Son by Kansas. Cool. Favorite movie? Uh, that's a tough one. I'm not a big movie guy. I've watched hardly any movies in my life. I just, I, I, I'm more into documentaries. So my favorite documentary was uh, the building of the Empire State Building. That was the <laughs> most interesting documentary I've ever watched. It was really, really neat. Well, I, you know, I'm going to qualify this question in the future, and I'm going to ask, what's your favorite movie or documentary? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry I, I do have movies I like, but I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of back to the future guy. I don't watch movies very much. So. Uh, what are you grateful for, Dan? I'm just thankful for my life. You know, I, I've, I've been through some, some tough times in my life and, uh, and growing up, I had some difficulties, but uh, I'm thankful to be who I am, where I am, what I am. So I'm just grateful for my life and the opportunity to live it. This is the favorite part of the show, and because I get to really get anchored in what I'm grateful for, and what I'm grateful for is always to be able to have a guest on my show, uh, my opportunity to get to know you better. I've had the opportunity, certainly, like, like I said, to have heard you play and how you show up, and uh, I'm so I'm grateful for that. And I'm just grateful for my life and what I get to contribute as a coach and as a leader with the Real Estate Investment Network. And Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and i'm so grateful for that and uh thank you for being on the show thank you for getting out of bed a little bit early and uh, yeah, that's right. you know and, i appreciate it thanks for the opportunity i do appreciate it this is all positive stuff and i'm a positive guy so any positive contribution any of us can make to any of this is is all good it adds to the collective good thanks dan ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening if you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends, as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time... Patrick out.